Welcome to the Adventure Creator Podcast. My guest today is Adam Narot. Adam is a director, cinematographer, editor, all types of creator. He's a graphic designer. And not only that, he's a complete badass when it comes to adventure sports. Uh, he competed in mountain biking. He's a whitewater uh, river kayaker, as well as an ice climber and a number of other outdoor activities. So thank you for turning on this show, and I hope that you enjoy this as much as I did. Here we go with Adam Narot. Adam Narot, welcome to the show, my man. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me. This is a long time coming, and uh, appreciate you jumping on, sharing some time today. I'm super excited for this conversation for a number of reasons. Uh, we met in, what, 2018 in Banff, um, and that was right. my first foray. I t- I've talked about it so many times on the podcast, but my first kind of like dipping my toe into the creative world and especially in filmmaking. And um, I remember learning a lot from you that week and uh, just kind of in our you know week together of intense uh, class, at least for, it was intense for me. It was probably like entry level stuff for you, but... Uh, I took away that you were a very driven and talented filmmaker, and that has come to be true. So uh, super excited to talk about your film, uh, Los Palacos, Godspeed, Los Palacos. Is that how Palacos. I pronounce it? Palacos. Yeah. Um, and just generally about your background as a director and filmmaker. So give me a little context on early career. How did you get into the creative space, uh, and what was the the transition from growing up to seeing this path as viable and uh, something you wanted to do with your life. Sure. Well, uh, I got into filmmaking in like late high school. Uh, and at the time I was really into music and I was really into racing mountain bikes. Um, That's right. And I thought that I would, uh, my like original like high school kind of aspiration was to go into uh, film scoring. Um, and so I was like applying to music schools and stuff like that. But in late high school, my buddy uh, had a camera and we started like filming little things out here and there. And I started filming mountain bike races. And that's kind of how kind of like those were my, that was my entry into uh, outdoor adventure filmmaking. And this was in the era of like the, the DSLR coming into fruition as like the filmmaker's tool of choice and really kind of redefining what digital cinematography looked like. Uh, so it was an exciting time because you could do like things that looked like they were from an actual movie with very little equipment. And it was like, it was like 2008 when the 5d Mark II first came out and like you could, you know, you had interchangeable lenses that could do shallow depth of field mm-hmm. and, and digital didn't suck anymore. And it was a really exciting time to uh, be learning about cinematography because it was all just like happening right there. And like, I just remember like when gimbals first came out and drones first came out, it was just like every single year, like the whole like landscape of filmmaking totally changed from a technique perspective. I mean, the uh-huh. story obviously is the same from the dawn of time, but uh, it was a cool time to be learning about film and dipping my toes into it. Um, and so ultimately I ended up going that direction and kind of abandoned the, the music track, which thank God I did. Cause like, dude, film composing has to be like the most competitive field in the universe really yeah so we funded our film partially using a kickstarter campaign <laughs> and it's it's totally tragic uh but if you run a kickstarter for a film you'll get no less than 50 composers writing you an email being like hey do you need a composer for your movie 
and no other department's going to do that. You're not going to get art directors writing you. You're not going to get like DPs or anything or editors. No one's going to do that, but you will get like 50 emails, no less than 50 emails from music composers. Wow. And so it's a testament to how brutal that landscape is, especially with how like cheap stock music is now. And, and it's just like, wow. Yeah. I really like, I feel for anyone who's going in that direction. Cause like it is incredibly competitive. I have a buddy who's in, he's down in uh, LA right now and he full-time does sound. He's, he doesn't, he does do scoring for films, but he also is a hired hand for TV shows and stuff like that. And I actually, I don't know if I told you this, but I just spent a week in October running sound myself. I had never mm-hmm. done it before with a big audio mixer and everything up in the mountains in California. And man, that's a craft in and of itself. Oh, totally. And like, I think that that's kind of like, unless you could like unless the stars really align i think it's pretty rough to be just a film scorer or composer like you got to be doing that technical side as well you got to be doing uh sound design you got to be doing you know live uh audio capture um Mm -hmm. stuff like that because otherwise it's probably pretty hard to make a living so you were initially in like the high school kind of like formulative formulative times. I don't know if that's the right word, but as you were like starting to ask questions about like, what are you going to do professionally and figuring out this crazy world that we live in, uh, you kind of landed on film. It's like, Oh, it seems, uh, like, you know, you've been pretty much on that path for the last 10 plus years. And, um, yeah, yeah. I think that the, the, the thing that I realized about film is that, uh, it's like this omni craft that like encompasses everything. And so my issue going into college wasn't that, like, I didn't have any interests. I had just, like, too many interests. Uh, And so, like, I was also, like, I was dabbling a lot in, like, graphic design and, like, making posters for, like, all my friends' bands and stuff. Um, And so, like, and film was this, like, one craft that, like, literally requires everything. And it's funny, like, when people look at, like, budgets for narrative films, they're like, how does that cost $45 million? It's like if you're if you're shooting a narrative feature, you are rebuilding a world. Like you are building a world. Like you need carpenters, you need like like cooks, you need everything. Straight up, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so uh so film was just like this super exciting thing where like I felt like I didn't really have to choose what I wanted to do anymore. I could I was just like, I'm just gonna like put my time and energy into film and I can kind of do anything I want uh through that. And especially if, with documentary, like, if I'm interested in, like, I don't know, geology, I can go make a movie about geology. And then, like, and the cool thing about it is it gives you instant access to the top people anywhere. Yep. Like, if, yeah, if you, you know, you put in the time and effort to, 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 to refine your skills as a filmmaker, you can have access to anybody. The camera's uh, a passport. Is, absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. That's absolutely uh, true. So that, like, and that's how I got into whitewater kayaking. I was just like... I, I always liked what like the idea of whitewater kayaking. I went on this like uh, trip when I was five through like Yellowstone and stuff, and I would just like look at the rivers as we would drive by, by them on these like you know extended road trip uh, scenarios, and I would be like, oh man, I'm, like I would ask my dad like, how do those rapids like what's going on there? And he would like we'd get to like the motel at the end of the night and they'd have a pool and he'd show me how the rapids were made, and so I like I remember getting home. Um, uh, from this trip and I had this Hot Wheels track and I took all these like little wood chips and rocks and I glued them into the Hot Wheels track and I poured water down the track and like watched how like the river, the little river simulation I made like reacted. And so I'd always like liked the idea of whitewater kayaking. It took me a while to finally like 
uh, have the time and, and uh, space to do it. But essentially, like, I just looked up who, like, the local hotshots were. And I just, like, called them up. I'm like, hey, you guys want to make a video? <laughs> and, and that's kind of how I broke into, into Whitewater. That's awesome, man. I did something kind of similar. I was in Moab, Utah uh, on a road trip and I was just calling all the canyoneering companies like, hey, I'll make a video for free if you just take me on one of your trips. And eventually I, I uh, after getting the door slammed on me a couple times, I got some guys to uh, to take me on one of their like private guided trips. And I hustled so hard. I flew the drone. I did all this stuff with the camera. And, you know, I think I got paid 50 bucks or something like that. And uh, the video is total garbage now looking at it, but it was, it was fun. And yeah, that's uh, what, you know, I don't know. Obviously, you know, that the, the, the podcast is called Adventure Creator Podcast. And uh, it's really like this concept just came to me in college when I was kind of trying to figure out these same questions that I'm kind of asking you about of like, you know, what, is, what are we meant to do with this life? And what fulfills us and it just kind of came to me these two words like oh life is about like creating an adventure and living living life to the fullest and that's one thing that i certainly respect about you like is there something about you that you're willing to just take that leap and jump in and make it happen or was there what were the hurdles mentally or externally that were difficult to kind of like get into this space because now you're sitting here you've got the momentum you know, you've got the experience, but in high school or in college, when you were not at that point, what was that like? Uh, so it's funny when I, when I first went to college, I I was an ecology major, so I spent my first year as an ecology major. Uh, but then I realized that I, I wanted to do something in a, in a creative field, um, and so I transferred over to the the visual arts uh, school at Rutgers, which is the State University in New Jersey. Um, and there I was pursuing a, a major in graphic design, uh, but I also signed up for their uh, video program, uh, which turned out to not be like a filmmaking program at all. It was like a performance art captured on video program. Oh, weird. <laughs> and so it was pretty gnarly. Like it, <laughs> it was like if your final wasn't about vomit or vaginas or the intersection of the two, <laughs> like you were like, you just weren't going to pass. <laughs> and so I was like, this is not my scene. Um, but thankfully, um, I don't know, I kind of ended up in this like, like kind of serendipitous moment where there was this uh, professor in the English department who was working on making a like an actual filmmaking program. And her interest was like science based documentary. Uh, and she, she was like, she was like a total bulldog of a producer. Uh, and she was like, just making this program out of the English department, like completely removed from like any sort of like art school or whatever. And it ultimately, it kind of like started making its way over to the art school. And uh, so she had all these like big ideas of like, OK, we're going to send kids to like do like documentaries all over the world. And like she had all these like big things. And because there was no actual filmmaking school at Rutgers, I was like one of the only kids there that like knew anything about cameras. So they were all like, wow, this kid's incredible. <laughs> and so I got really lucky by not actually going to a film school because they sent me to Brazil. They sent me to Rome twice to like shoot these like documentary projects out there. But of course, the whole thing is like, you can't send a kid out there. That's like completely un unsustainable. And it was also like, they're totally playing favorites with me while like kind of like overlooking everybody else. Uh -huh. And so like eight years into her like vision quest to make this thing a major, they like they fire her the exact year that it becomes a major. Uh, and so it was a pretty scandalous thing uh, with the, the, the teacher getting like axed after like making bringing this like filmmaking program to yeah. life. But uh, did, the, this is all did the program survive? 
the program survived. Um, I'm not entirely sure what's going on with it. Uh, I think it has taken more of a narrative um, direction because she, she was really pushing like science documentary was like that was, was going to be like the, the hallmark of that program. Um, but this is all to say that like I had a very uh, I got lucky. I definitely got lucky. Uh, and I think that's true for like any kind of creative person or any like pursuit in life. It's like, yeah, you have to have your skills, but you also have to be lucky. Um, but I got a a wild and very interesting film education uh, by not going to a film school. That's really interesting. So you you had this interest and you were just kind of on you were just doing the same thing as everybody else trying to figure it out. And it kind of like blended together in a nice, natural way. They say yeah. uh, hard work is preparation for a lucky day. That's right. That's right. Uh, and the other, so I, I very much got into filmmaking with a friend who lived in my neighborhood and, and went to the same high school as me. Um, and he ended up going to Tisch at NYU, just like, you know, prestigious film school. Um, and so I had this very, um, like immediate feedback from like what real film school world looked like and what my weird fake film school world looked like. Um, and so that was that was yeah that was like very curious and and he and I have have remained great buds through the years and um, we help each other on all our projects and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was just like curious to compare the two realities there. Yeah, that's really interesting. What was the the you mentioned Rome and Brazil? Did you go on your own? Did you have a small crew? What did you learn on those trips? Uh, Brazil was for a project about uh, urban food scarcity. And so that was like following this professor from Rutgers around as he did like all this like nutrition studies and like favelas and stuff, which was, it was pretty full on. <laughs> like there was definitely like moments where we were like, okay, you got to put the cameras away. Like, Damn. you know, the, the local like uh, powers that be are like, you know, not happy. Like, yeah. Things are getting hot in this zone. Let's get out of here. And like, uh, so that was pretty exciting. And then Rome was this really cool story that like never really came to fruition. Uh, mostly because like the program kind of dissolved over there and stuff, but like uh, the access was incredible. And like, it was definitely like, it was a story that was way out of my league. Like what the hell was I doing out there trying to capture it? But um, it was a story about Roman aristocracy in like the modern era. And so uh, we were uh, connected with this family, the Bon Compagni Ludovisi, uh, which are direct descendants of Pope Gregory the 16th, who uh, is a Pope obviously. And, uh, instituted the um, the um, Greco-Roman calendar that oh, wow. we all use. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they have this like villa and it's got the only Caravaggio ceiling painting in the world. And it's just like, it's just like this weird relic in the middle of Rome. Um, but what's interesting about this whole story is that there's an American um, debutante, for lack of a better word, who ends up marrying into that family um and she's just got this crazy background where she's like in, in like american politics for a long time but she like uh, is involved in this whole scandal that actually the movie american hustle is about this scandal and so she's like kind of involved in that uh and so she kind of like falls out of the political uh world like poses for playboy stars in all these like b-horror movies uh uh, releases a country album like oh, wow. she has like this incredibly storied life but when she gets to Rome like she marries this prince because she's doing this like she, she ends up getting into real estate story's crazy uh, <laughs> th like 
like does some like big sale for like Donald Trump in like the seventies or something, <laughs> uh, and like ends up meeting this 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 Roman prince when he's trying to buy some property in the United States, uh, and ends up like falling in love and marrying him. But like the the Roman family is all like, who the hell is this gold digger coming in from the United States? Blah blah blah, and so they all try to villainize her. But really, in actuality, it's just like that whole family's like selling off parts of the estate and letting the entire thing crumble. And then oh, wow. she comes in as this like one like figure who's actually trying to like maintain the family history and like preserve it and stuff. And so it's just like interesting battle of like old world Europe and like new money like America uh, mixing together. It was just nuts. It was a completely crazy story. And it's a shame that it didn't go anywhere because it was it was pretty far out <laughs> that yeah so many elements and like just yeah. big players and stuff like that as a young kid just trying to you know make one of your first films that would be dude yeah and like oh my god yeah and i was out there as like a in a cinematography capacity and there was like other students doing the editing and stuff but like dude this lady had some big vision for what these kids would be able to accomplish <laughs> <laughs> i love it we need we need bulldogs out there as you said and, uh... well that was i think that was ultimately her downfall unfortunately oh, really? is that she she's like a producer that could get anything done but at what cost right? right like i think she burnt a lot of bridges she stepped on a lot of toes and ultimately the the deans of the departments were just like uh all right, you you've you've done too much. Yeah, that works when you're a freelancer doing your own business, but when you're yeah. part of a big institution and representing other people, it can get a little dicey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tricky. <laughs> Very cool. So let's uh, give me the. Obviously, like this conversation is largely going to revolve around your your new film. So talk to me about how the film initially came to be the idea uh and give me the the elevator pitch that i heard now almost you know three years ago uh, sure i'm sure it's changed over the years but yeah it has changed a lot um well godspeed los polacos is the lost story of the world's greatest road trip and the fall of the soviet union um and so the i guess just the background information that's important to know is that um I'm a first-generation American, so my parents uh, emigrated from Poland in the late 80s. Um, and my partner, who's the producer on the project, um, she's also kind of shares a very similar backstory. Um, and so I learned about the story of the Kanawandas um, kind of just because my parents landed in New Jersey, and one of the, the characters from our story uh, also ended up... Um, leaving for New Jersey after he became a political dissident um, from Poland. And uh, my dad was into mountaineering and climbing and stuff like that. And uh, he just kind of, you know, was finding the other Polish people in New Jersey who were into that kind of stuff. And, and so we knew Jurek uh, growing up kind of as a family friend. Um, and I'd always heard about this like infamous kind of like story about him and the, the Colca Canyon in Peru and how and a bunch of these other like guys got like first descents and stuff but like i never really understood what the hell it was all about but i was like oh this sounds really cool and like you know like maybe we'll make a short film or something and so i would approach i approached him a few times over the years because i saw that like in his office he had these like 16 millimeter reels of fil like film i was like oh but that's pretty cool and i approached him a few times over the years and he and you got to understand that like this guy just knew me since I was a kid as like this little like Grom just running around his backyard at like family barbecues and stuff. 
he's like you're not a filmmaker what are you talking about like he's like you know these are like precious fragile 16 millimeter movies he's like i'm not gonna open this up and let you like just destroy it and scratch it up and so it took years of convincing him to actually let us make this film uh but like one day i think i think it kind of just like serendipitously lined up that like the date that we wanted to shoot the interview was like his birthday and i think it was like a, like a, i don't know it just like it all kind of like lined up just right um and he finally sat down with us and we got this like four and a half hour interview out of him and we're like oh shit this is not the 22 minute short film that we thought this was going to be this is a feature um and so to that extent i think he might have been right like <laughs> we weren't ready <laughs> to uh -huh. tell that story when we first approached him about it because <laughs> we were like you know we thought it was gonna be this like stylish like 20 minutes short or whatever uh -huh. and he was like he knew that it was much bigger than that um and so that was horrifying because uh if you had asked me before this movie like what does hell look like and even after this movie, I'd still tell you the same answer. Hell is editing a feature-length documentary. Oh, my goodness, man. It's terrible. It's so hard. Oh it's so goodness. much work. It's, like, completely thankless. It's not sexy. Like, cinematography is sexy. You yeah. show up on the shoot. You pull out your big-ass expensive camera. Everyone's like, wow, you shot that in beautiful stuff. No one cares about editing. No one thinks about the editor. Right. It's like the editor is so the unsung hero. Like even in documentaries, everyone's like, "Oh, the director did all this work." I mean, you know, it's it's tough to say what the actual director or editor relationship is on, on a lot of projects. But dude, the fucking editor does so much work on a doc, and nobody cares about it. And so when we came to the realization that we're gonna have to edit this thing because we didn't have any money to hire anybody or anything, yeah. this is like a completely uh, it's like an impossible pitch uh -huh. like you come try to find finances with saying that you're going to do this movie about this like expedition from the 70s about some like cult, like canyon in peru that nobody cares about and like you, you tell them there's like a big political element like they just fall asleep they're mm -hmm. like it's just it's like it's not relevant like we couldn't get any like it was really hard to get any like brand partnerships on board because it's like not relevant it's 40 years old it's not like we're going to be able to put a logo in it of like someone wearing a jacket or something sure um and so it was, it was tricky to find partners from that. And then the partners that we did find, you know, they're whitewater brands. There's no money in whitewater. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, they gave us some product for Kickstarters and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I'm probably getting no. a little away from your, uh, no, your trajectory here. No, I'm loving it. Back. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought your point there, I was going to ask you about it because obviously like this project, just given the fact that you weren't there in the 70s to film it. Like you got the footage from them, you had the interviews. And then uh, for those who haven't seen it, like you do this, the editing is unbelievably good, man. Like I'm not Maybe. blowing smoke here. The, the animations of the photos and the graphics and just like the way the whole vibe comes together, like makes the film for sure. Not obviously like the storytelling that you're, you're watching this story and you almost forget that it happened like 50 years ago or whatever, because you're like very, uh, there's a lot of, I want to say suspense or like urgency on the story because you're watching these guys, they're going down to descend for the first time, this Canyon in Peru, which like it's in Peru, correct? Yeah. yeah. And the, the journey isn't just the, the Canyon. Like they try and do one river, there's political violence in that place. So they have to go to a different one. They, it's like this insane winding story. And meanwhile, the whole time, Poland is still under communist control. And so there's this like sense that back home, like they're almost like wanted fugitives. And it's like this incredible kind of dynamic where they're like, they're like renegades, like, you know, doing some badass first descent, 
with like almost no skill too. Like they didn't even know how to flip the kayaks, like doing like a, what, what do you call that? Like a self roll? The, the, uh, uh, Eskimo roll. Eskimo or roll. Yeah. Yeah. They had to like teach themselves that. And oh man. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, and, That's what attracted us to this story. Um, that has made me jaded about a lot of like other uh, outdoor adventure narratives. It's just like, this story has it all. <laughs> it's got the fun expedition stuff that like I love. I love whitewater. Uh, I love just like, you know, this like idea of like, you know, going on a road trip to someplace you've never been with all your buddies. But like, how many of those kind of stories can you listen to? Because they all kind of like boil down to be this exact same thing. It's just like, okay, you, you're like living a privileged existence that like allows you to, to invent a problem for yourself. And then you and your buddies go do this thing and you film a thing for Red Bull and then cool. It's just like, it doesn't fucking matter at the end of the day. But what is so amazing about this story is like, it's not any of that. It's like, these guys are living like a completely, in a completely stifled and oppressed existence under Soviet communism. They invent this like, like charade essentially of being whitewater kayakers to like right. slip out of the country. Uh, and then they ended up like, they had like, the whole thing is so much bigger than just like this invented problem because the problems that they're facing are so re like real and like their motivations aren't just like this like oh i wish my like life was more exciting than my nine to five it's like they truly believe that the entire existence of poland li like rests on their shoulders wow. and they're convinced that like when they are in the grand canyon their success, in, not the Grand Canyon, sorry, the uh, Colca Canyon, their success in the Colca Canyon determines the fate of the Pope who gets assassinated the day that they go in. They're like, if we don't succeed in the, in the Colca Canyon, the Pope will die. <laughs> <laughs> like, so their motivations are just so spectacular and so grand. It sounds a little crazy, but it's not that far off. Like, if you think about just the level of attention that was on them, like, they're doing this... It feels like if they fail, there will be significant repercussions. If they succeed, they can come home and maybe there won't be such repercussions. Totally. And 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 this the 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 thing about this story, and originally when we were thinking about it, um there's it was an investigation into into Polish exploration in the late seventies, early eighties, which if you look at winter first ascents of eight thousand meter peaks like find this like chart on wikipedia it's nuts it's every single thing is a polish flag winter first ascents and eight of eight thousand meter peaks is all polish uh uh accomplishments and it's just like how the hell is that happening poland has nothing dude you can't fucking buy anything on a shelf there's no down jackets or anything like how is this little country that has like no mountains in it getting all the winter first ascents and we're like and, and so that was a real that was a real curiosity for us and this is a story that is very similar to those uh, Himalayan exploits, but is lesser known. It's a whitewater tale. It got completely buried in Poland because uh, they get into a lot of trouble and the, the, essentially the memory of them gets erased in Poland. Um, and so if, originally that's what we were exploring. We were like, what are the circumstances culturally, socially, economically, politically that are, are contributing to these, like, these complete underdogs having like all the top uh like sporting accomplishments that you know everybody wants yeah there's no mountains uh, there anyways yeah it's just like what the hell is going on <laughs> uh and I, and I think it really boils down to like a large part of is like poland poland's primary problem politically and geographically is that it's between germany and russia exactly. right and so it's just like borderland that's just getting pounded from both sides for 
centuries. Um, and so it, it develops into this like weird complex of like, you have to prove your worth by doing these crazy things because otherwise you don't exist. And like, otherwise your like culture just fades away because it literally gets destroyed from both sides. Uh, and I think it manifests into these like spectacular, like winter mountaineering <laughs> achievements and stuff. Um, and so that was like our initial kind of exploration. And ultimately I think it, it grows into uh, this bigger thing about um, it's more character based and, and um, uh, it becomes like an immigration story and a refugee story. Um, but it, it's just like, it's like an onion. It's got so many layers. You're, Shrek. No, you're right. It's funny. <laughs> One of my questions, the fourth question on here is why are polls so crazy? And like you kind of answered it even better than I could have. I actually, I spent a couple days, I was in Europe a couple years ago and took a train out to Krakow and a little side story. I woke up at 3 a.m. on the train. I was sleeping, kind of like half sleeping. I woke up and there was uh, some guy digging through my backpack, literally like two feet in front of me. And I just was like, I was like, wait, what? You want my ticket? I gave my, I had my ticket in my hand and I grabbed my ticket and I was like, oh, I thought it was the, one of the guys from the train and he just runs out of the room and I stand up. I'm like, oh, don't you want to like scan my ticket? And I look (laughs) in the hallway and there's like nobody but me and like these three fucking scary looking Polish dudes. And I just had this like, welcome to Krakow, like 5 AM. Like I almost get my shit jacked. And so I I was kind of like jaded. I get off the train and I record a video of myself talking. There's a river right in Krakow there. I sat next to the river and I kind of reflected like this is completely irrelevant from this conversation, but uh, kind of a funny story. Like I, I was just like, man, like I'm judging this country based on this one experience that I just had. Like I'm showing up. I'm like kind of like, man, screw this country. I just, I just want to go back to Rome and go somewhere else or whatever. Sure. Uh, and I ended up going to a gym. It was this old school gym, probably from the 70s, 80s. Everything's yellow, really rusty, and like all these photos of these jacked Polish dudes. And I go in there and I end up just having like fantastic conversations with these two guys. They told me all about how passionate and uh, like kind of how much of an honor it is to be a Pole. And they told me the exact story that, that you were just kind of alluding to, that Poland is in between the European powers and Germany and... Russia. So like every war that's been fought has literally been on their territory. And uh, that definitely forms like a lot about the culture. So that's interesting. And and, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge, especially now with like the kind of crazy political situation that's in Poland is that like this kind of intense nationalism also has an ugly side that like, I don't know, man, I just like think that like any kind of, you know, it's 2021, man, we're moving into the future. Like it's like I think intense nationalism in any country is is ultimately a bad thing. Right. But moving on. <laughs> no, I mean I think that's a fantastic point. Like there's this balance. There's always a double edged sword in everything in life, right? Like yeah. Uh, like passion for your culture and like really like being connected to the heritage that you come from is valuable. I feel like a lot of Americans, myself included. Uh, we have like family traditions and maybe some religious traditions, but we don't really have like cultural traditions in the same I don't way. Know. I think there's a there's an int- intensely strong nationalistic thing in the United States as well, uh, and I think it's it's the same thing that exists in in Poland and in other places where it's just like it's just like this like complete fallacy of like oh we're better than them right just because like you have pride for where you come from it doesn't fucking make any sense right. Uh, it's not productive. Yeah. No. It's like, not. it's like, it, it doesn't, 
it all it does is it shows divide. Um, uh, I guess it gets you up eight thousand meter peaks in some. Space, in some <laughs> like I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the uh, one of the beautiful things about traveling and documentaries. Even if you don't get to travel to places, like we get to experience your film and get a view into a story that we never would have been exposed to before. I think this is one of the going back to what you were saying about technology, DSLR cameras, professional recording equipment being accessible to the average filmmaker just getting into it um there's just so many more stories that we have access to instead of just like the big hollywood films which are going to be in a very narrow lane and have a specific bias and things like that so i love how travel and also documentary films i don't consume as many um films as i used to but uh i've learned a ton through my experiences traveling and it always kind of like you look back at your life in the U.S. and you're like, well, we think we're the center of the world over there. Really, we're just another country. And the the playing field is definitely leveling, right? Like we might be the most militarily powerful country, but there's, you know, there's growth happening all over the place. And uh, the world is not going to be dominated by the United States empire forever. So side note again, but uh, yeah, I, I love like this kind of this conversation around like how do we build a future or how do you as an individual navigate being passionate about your culture, being proud to be who you are, and also uh, not like nationalistic or think of yourself as better. So yeah, super interesting yeah. stuff. How did, how did your childhood was, um, was the Polish background pretty big in, in growing up for you? Being a yeah, first? huge. Um, I used to, <laughs> my parents used to send me to these uh, uh, Boy Scout camps in Poland and no uh over the summer just it was so cheap like for like the equivalent in u.s dollars for like 300 bucks you could send your kid away for an entire month wow <laughs> and so that's what they would do they'd send me to poland like half my family lived there so i would go with my cousin to these scout camps and the, the important thing to understand about scout camps in poland is it's not like boy scouts in the america uh in america it uh, scouting in poland has this tradition of it's essentially a paramilitary organization because um, in World War II, uh, scouts just fought. They were like army regiments. Uh, and so especially in my family, like my grandpa was a, like a battalion leader of like a scouting unit. Uh, and so like that's like a big point of pride for, for uh, my parent, my dad's side of the family. Uh, and so it was like insane to be tossed into like one of these scenarios as like this like American kid. And like these kids were like freaking ready to go to war and die i wow. like remember, yeah it was like that was like a thing like uh I remember, at what like, age like, dude i was like nine or ten Holy shit. i know right uh and like the, like the safety standards for these camps and stuff was like completely different like you could never do this stuff in the united states like you just get sued instantly <laughs> uh but yeah i mean they're they're pretty hardcore like they just like dropped you off in the middle of the woods uh and you had to build everything from scratch like like we'd build like these giant mess halls out of like it, so the first day you get dropped off and you have like all these like military like tents and stuff and so you like your first day is like you kind of just like sleep on the ground with like on these like canvasy big tents or whatever and the next day this giant like uh 18 wheeler kind of truck comes up uh, around and it just drops all these logs 
And then, like, the next week, you just build an entire little village out of these logs. Wow. <laughs> and so you're digging latrines, you're building the entire mess hall, you're doing all this stuff. Uh, and, like, these are, like, nine-year-old kids with, like, axes and stuff. And some people are, like, chopping their fingers off. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's amazing. Nine years uh, old, man. I, I went to camp at nine years old. I think I was, you know, it was called Camp Orkyla. And it was the opposite of that, for sure, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it starts pretty young. I, I think, okay, so yeah i think that, that matches up how old are you when you're in first grade you're seven right uh-huh. so, so i think i went there the summer of fourth grade my first time so okay nine ten something like that but there was kids younger than me there's like they're cub scouts or whatever but anyway yeah i remember like like you know around the campfire like there was like these questions of like oh what does like scouting mean to you and there was kids who were like literally like i'm ready to take up arms for my country wow <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is going on? I was like, I don't know. That's what I signed up for. <laughs> did that give you an advantage or not an advantage, but did that give you a perspective that helped you navigate your life back in the U.S.? I think so. I think that like I've, uh, I talk about this a lot, just like in all sorts of funny, inappropriate contexts, but like I very much <laughs> learned how to suffer there. Like, uh, and it's like, I've had various forays into like uh, endurance sports over the years uh, and I did a lot of endurance mountain bike racing in high school and stuff. But like, I think that like, I'm pretty good at suffering. <laughs> it's a good skill to have. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, when I had like, uh, there's like at the end of college, I had like broken up with this like relationship that I was in for like five years and I bought this van and moved around. And, you know, part of it was like, uh, you know, I was looking for like who, who like the next, like my next partner would be or whatever. Uh, and part of the language I would use to describe who that person was would be like, they have to know how to suffer. <laughs> um, wow. Well, well yeah. put. <laughs> Just because, like, yeah, I mean, like, shit gets tough. And, like, um, you know, when shit hits the fan, there's, like, it's just whether or not you have a fight or flight response. Um, and I think that, that those, those scouting days, like, very much put a lot of uh, shit going wrong into perspective. <laughs> What was one of the bigger challenges with this film? Like, was there a point you can remember where you're like, shit, this thing's falling apart or anything like that? Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, I think uh, narratively, it was a really tricky story to tell uh, because there's um, there's five main characters. Uh, That's a lot. But if you try to introduce them linearly, there's 10 main characters at the beginning. I'm like, we can't introduce 10 people. And so we had to figure out a way uh, to judo the story into allowing us to just keep it to five people. Mm-hmm. And so we end up doing this like flashback uh, structure that lets us establish, okay, these are the five people you need to know. There's two people that join them, but ignore them. Uh, and forget about the, the other five people, the total of 10 that started the expedition. With right. them. Um, and so I think that that like, structurally, that's, that's what I, I struggled with the most. Cause um, like we were talking about the, the motion graphics and stuff earlier like that stuff for me is just like a joy Mm -hmm. like that is a lot of fun um and it's something that like doesn't require me to like listen to things so i can just like put on some bad tv and just like zone out Mm -hmm. and just like put together all these like super elaborate motion graphics that like you know really up the production value um and so that's fun and easy for me but the story stuff is where uh i think most of the challenges uh presented themselves and then recently this last weekend uh we won uh an award for best script at uh bbk bbk mendy uh which was like that was like a huge honor for us um because 
that's really like where the struggle was is figuring out how to formulate the story, get the script to a place that it made sense and wasn't like a complete mess. Um, yeah, it was, that was a tricky one. So Banff isn't the, uh, the gold standard for you. <laughs> no, Banff, no, I mean, totally like my entire life. I was like, in it, I would say since, since I was like maybe 17 or something, that's like all I wanted. <laughs> uh, and it was definitely like the first thing that like, that was our guiding light through the entire production process. Um, mm -hmm. Because so Banff does their world tour. Uh, we don't have any mountain film festivals here in New Jersey, but the world, the Banff world tour comes through. And I went to that. I was like, this is the coolest thing. Ever. <laughs> and so like, that's all I wanted to do. And I, I'm like, I guess maybe like I, worked professionally doing nothing but filmmaking for probably eight or nine years before this film came out. And for those eight or nine years, you know, I would tell people like, Oh, I'm into action adventure sport filmmaking and stuff like that. But like, I didn't really have anything to show for it. Like I had made a few like shorts and some like product videos and stuff in the industry. But like, I would always go to these film festivals and I'd have a ton of opinions about things. I'd be like, Oh, that's really good. That's really bad. Like <laughs> this is like the best director of blah, blah, blah. But like, I didn't feel like I had anything to like legitimize any of my claims or like, you know, prove that like, Oh, I'm actually a part of this community and stuff. So, um, our first festival where we premiered the film at was the, the 2020 BAM film festival. And we ended up winning best feature. Uh, and that was like completely life affirming. I was like, okay, Oh, thank God I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, so you, you got to the top of the mountain. You achieved something that's like, for anyone in this space, it's almost like if you were in Hollywood going, like getting an Oscar. You know, it's like not... Yeah, I it's mean, it's a lot easier than that. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, in our in the, in our little universe, uh, I think that Banff one is probably the, 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 the top dog. I, I don't know if it's easier, man, because if you think about the total number of people that win Best Feature at Banff, there's way less than win Oscar. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's different. It's, yeah, diff it's different. A, it's, a, it's a totally yeah. different universe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, some some uh, something that we learned through the festival circuit this year, uh, and that we were kind of blinded by, because we were always just like we were just every all of our deadlines are based around the, the BAM submission deadline. Mm -hmm. um, that now, if we had done this again, and I knew what I knew now the smart thing to do and the thing to do if you have like a real movie is um is you do a big festival run first so like you're you apply for your hot docs your tribeca your south by southwest your sundance kind of stuff and you do that the first year mm -hmm. because we uh disqualified ourselves from a lot of these top tier festivals because we were just focused on mountain films right um and so so like wall of shadows uh who's been in uh, a lot of festivals with us this year um, I was talking to uh, the director of that film, and she was saying, um, yeah, her first year on the festival circuit is just the big ones. Interesting. Just so you don't disqualify yourself, and then the second year is your mountain film festivals. That's if you really think you have a chance at the big ones, right? I mean, that's true, yeah. That's, that's if you really think you have a chance. And I think you can get, you know, you would get, an, you would get a feel for it pretty quickly, I think. Uh -huh. um, I mean, nothing's really quick because it all takes kind of months between right. submission and, and acceptance and stuff. But like, I do think that we kind of shot ourselves in the foot for a few festivals uh, because we, we prioritize these mountain film festivals first. But uh, I think that that'll be the plan for the next one, if and when. Um, 
but no, I mean, like, I couldn't be more psyched. Like, I the mean, band forward is, like, all I've ever wanted. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. And it was online, so that must have been kind of weird. Like, you're that not... That was the worst. Yeah, dude. you're not, like, on stage. Like, it's just way different. I'm sure it still felt super good and self-affirming, but, like, also a little bit yeah. sour. Like, man, if we had only done this a year ago, we'd be in a packed audience. Like, just completely different experience. Yeah, that part sucked because you, you, you win the thing that you've been working for your entire life, but you win it through an email. Oh, God. <laughs> You're sitting at home. Uh, well, at least you and your partner got to celebrate, hopefully. Yeah, well, we had a uh, we organized like a local premiere for like our Kickstarter supporters and stuff like that on the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it felt like, you know, we got to celebrate with people there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a little bit of a redeeming thing. But yes, the I mean, truth be told, uh, pandemic for us and Godspeed Los Polacos was a blessing and a curse because if it didn't happen, I don't think I'm not entirely sure we would be able to finish the movie because uh, it's like a thing that we finance entirely by ourselves and we had the Kickstarter sure but like it's we did all the work ourselves we had it was me and Sonia and then we had an illustrator that helped uh, with some of the animations and a sound designer and that was the entire crew so you know, we were trying our best to block off time and turn up down work. But like if work came around and it was good enough, I'd be like, I'm taking that. Sorry. Right. Uh, and then the pandemic rolled around and literally the entire world shut down. And we were just like, thank God, <laughs> we'll actually be able to finish the movie. <laughs> and it was funny. We were, yeah. yeah, we were so deep in the edit cave when it first happened that we really didn't realize that the whole world. Had shut down. <laughs> <laughs> you were just so in the zone. You're like not even looking at the news. Just. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was horrifying, but and and you know the whole emotional roller coaster that the pandemic brought on for most people. I think we we actually we were very fortunate to be able to have something to occupy our time so intensely, mm. where we never had the moment where we were just like, "Oh man, what do I do with myself?" Uh, and we kind of got past a lot of the stir crazies just because we were so deep in this project. Um, and it was great. No one wanted to hang out anymore. <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> That's so true, man. Like we really got this opportunity. I mean, you can look at it. It is what it is, right? There's certain things that are outside your control. And um, I've seen so many different people, you know, react to this and then comment on how their mindset was going into it. And I think uh, definitely speaks volumes to maybe it's that Polish background that you're just kind of like gritty and, you know, you're, you're not going to like let even a, a you know huge curveball prevent you sure. from just being happy and and living your life. I mean, I think the grit applies to just making the project at all, uh-huh. but I think we got really lucky with the timing there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you know, we had to pay for it too and do all these virtual festivals that totally sucked. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so it's a double edged sword. I mean, from what I know, the festival circuit is a pretty large time demand. Like just marketing the film, like how much uh, of your day-to-day in the last since it's been released now is it more than a year ago um yeah how much time and energy are you putting into just getting it out there and and pumping it um i would say uh, once you finish a, a feature you have a year of marketing distributions it's still do. Mm-hmm. um and part of that is like yeah submitting the festivals like doing all that kind of stuff but uh, a lot of it was i mean this was our first time navigating the distribution landscape and what the hell that looks like i was gonna and, ask like, sucks yeah <laughs> it's like the worst it's like not creative it's just like the worst underbelly of filmmaking ever right. and it's just like predatory companies that like take advantage of like actual creatives and 
and I don't know. So like I, I'm, I'm ultimately not very psyched with how our distribution kind of ended up playing itself out. Uh, we ended up signing with a distributor that does a lot of the big adventure sport films. We thought that like, oh, well, we're like, sweet. These guys do all the big ones. They picked our film up. That'd be cool. And like, I've never sold a movie before. We'll just like trust them to do what they're doing. And there's like a lot of things in the process where like, wait a second, I don't think they really understand the film. I don't think they understand the target audience, hmm. but I've never sold the movie. So I guess I'll just trust them. And then they completely fumbled the entire thing. Oh, and it's no. just like stupid mistakes, just like clerical errors and just like a complete, just wrong direction for the whole thing. And now I'm like, oh, no, I was right. They were wrong. <laughs> That's so and, interesting. Yeah, it's like one of those things that like, it's hard to have the confidence to like say that when you've never done it before. Mm -hmm. And now for if we ever do this process again, I, I, like I'm going to act completely differently because now I know like where I can assert myself and mm -hmm. be like, oh, no, no, this is this and that. Uh, where before I was just like, well, these guys are the experts. I'm going to trust them. Dude, that's like invaluable skills. Like it sounds like just yeah, yeah. outside well, yeah. of, you know, you don't think about these things when you start filmmaking. You're just like, how do I hold the camera? What does my frame look like? How do I click on stuff in Premiere? But this is like a huge aspect of it for sure. Just the distribution and marketing. There's entire industries, like you said, that are built up around it. And it's available, yeah. right? Might as well plug it right now. If, if uh, sure. you want to watch it, it's like five bucks and you can watch it on Amazon. Where, it's on and, yeah, it's on place? all the, the the TVOD, so the transactional video on demand platform. So it's your Amazon, your who, uh, not uh, your uh, uh, Apple, uh, like Apple TV, iTunes, um, whatever, like Microsoft does. Like so, Google Play, mm -hmm. um, YouTube, Vimeo, all that kind of stuff. Yep. So one question I got to go back to the film is, um, and it's kind of a selfish question because I watched the film, but halfway through the trip they get this call like you guys got to return the truck they took this military truck to sure. I, I assume they must have shipped it on a boat right and yeah, yeah were they with it the entire time or did they ship it and then meet it in the u.s or they I, shipped it and then met it in the u.s uh -huh. and that's actually one of the things i mean we have to cut a ton of things to make right the film can't have everything well whatever but like uh when the boat gets to the united states they've lost like a third of their equipment has been stolen what yeah <laughs> like how? so uh it's just like they you know they were away from their gear uh -huh. for like a month or whatever it takes the to get there and when i got there a third of it was gone no way yeah so yeah uh, they lose a bunch of kayaks at one point but the question i had is like five of them go back to poland and right. i was just like man like Imagine being one of those guys, you know, like I just feel right. like your entire life, the climax is about to come. You're getting ready for this huge project. And the feeling that I got was like the five guys who went back were just kind of like, I don't want to use any like mean words, but they're just kind of like soft, you know, and the guys that were willing to stay were the ones who were like, no, we're going to we're going to do this regardless of the repercussions. Is that a good analysis? I don't, I don't know if that's totally the case because uh -huh. I think that the, it's their circumstances of all the people were different. Totally. Like the guys who went back had like wives. Oh, yeah. Some of them had like kids and stuff, <laughs> right? Like they had like real responsibilities uh, that they had to attend to. Uh -huh. um, and I don't think that they had this like grand vision of like, oh, we're going to like do all this. And, like they just like the other guys just like were like having a good time and they wanted to keep going. Um, and I don't think like they, they, I don't think they really started it with like knowing that they were going to do what they did right? 
or that they, it would they didn't be know as, what they were getting into at all. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. They they just like wanted to have a good time. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just like yeah, like I don't know. They were having a good time, but the guys were probably like, all right, that was a cool trip. I got to go back to life. Right. right. <laughs> I got like you know, family and responsibilities. You know, who knows so what their personal situations like? I mean, if you have like a, a sick parent or something, oh, you can't, yeah, like you give yourself six months. Okay, now I got to go back. Yeah, totally. So, totally. I, yeah, I don't know if it's like a, it, it's quite fair to be like, oh, those guys were soft. <laughs> that, that was my like <laughs> initial reaction. I was like, I don't know, really. I just I, w- I would hate to be one of those guys. Like, honestly, I know, but it's like it's like a hindsight is twenty twenty yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. We're like, oh, okay, well, I could have stuck around for, to be in the movie, yeah. but like, <laughs> or just to do it. Yeah, I thought yeah, it was pretty was... crazy the fact that they got so much footage at such. Uh, precarious locations and such in such danger like that's almost a huge aspect of outdoor filmmaking is like just being able to film some of these things is a significant challenge like they're in these steep narrow canyons that are like a thousand feet high or more you can't even get out of them and they're just like maybe gonna die they're rationing food and they're just like pulling out the camera and filming like just documenting the journey like it's another day like i think i would throw that camera down the river and just try and survive if i was in their situation yeah, they love uh, they love this fact because uh, they love to remind people that all the footage that you see in the movie are the easy sections that they could actually do that in. Right. Like right. any part that was hard, they weren't going to redo for the camera or like get out and do all these things. Yeah. So like they are very much like, listen, the whitewater in this film is the easy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Jacek and Zbigniew, the, the uh, filmmaker and photographer, they, they did an amazing job. Uh, and, and, you know, especially since they're, they're working with 16 millimeter film Amazing. and it's a whole nother ball game. Um, and one of the, 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 the challenges with the film is that during their expedition, they were sending back, uh, photos and film to Poland okay. to get developed. And, uh, originally they were going to do some like, you know, kind of like, I don't know, a little documentary or whatever. Um, but when they end up getting into trouble later, all that footage is destroyed. Oh, so there's no. large chunks of like pretty much all the footage, like uh, 16 millimeter footage from Central America is missing. Wow. wow. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't it doesn't completely 100 percent overlap with the parts that we animate and stuff. But like that's like a large reason why we do so many motion graphics and stuff is because like, oh, well, if we didn't have to, it would be a lot easier to see the, the 16 millimeter footage or whatever. But um yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, that doesn't exist. But we're lucky enough to have the stuff that, that does. Did you feel a sense of uh, responsibility with that footage and with that story, especially with the family connection? Like, did you have a weight on your shoulders? Like, I need to tell this the right way? You know, it definitely feels like um, there's, like, no one, like, this is a, a, a story that, like, is truly, like, who else is going to tell this story? Sure. It's like, like, like we like Sonia and I, we were, were like we're we are the right voices for this, and um, there's a lot of this kind of stuff about like identity politics in, in, in documentary filmmaking or in just any sort of storytelling at all right now. And I don't think that's totally healthy or appropriate. Like people are like, oh, you can't make a movie mm-hmm. about like indigenous people because you're not indigenous. And I think that there's absolutely value to having a, you know an inside perspective about indigenous people. But like, I think it, it open it kind of puts us it sets us up on a really dangerous path of like limiting storytelling uh and i can think of so many examples where like 
outsiders make incredible documentary work that does justice to the people that it's about, mm -hmm. even though they're not directly from there. And like, so I would throw out Cartel Land as a great example of mm -hmm. that, um, where it's just like the the director's like, oh, is a white guy, but he's filming a, a, a film about uh, in Mexico that is like, it's one of the finest pieces of documentary that I've ever seen. Um, but back to our thing, like, I don't know. It's just like, it's an immigration story about Poland. Our parents immigrated from the exact same era. We're two people who like love white water and exploration and adventure. It just like, it felt like our story to tell. That must um, feel good. Yeah. But it, what it does is it, is it makes the follow-up movie very tricky mm. where it's like, what, what's our next movie? Yeah. Like there is no other story that like is, is so perfectly ours. Hmm. Um, and so now, now when we think about what we're going to do next, it's like, well, one, we have the realization that it takes like a good four years of your life. <laughs> and so now we're really scared yeah. uh, and very cautious about what we, we will agree to do. Um, but it, I don't think the next one will be, or it can be uh, something that feels so personal and like it's ours to tell. Mm -hmm. So there's no film right now that you're working on? You're still in the... Yeah we're constantly we have our feelings feelers out there and we're just uh -huh. kind of like being open to the world to, mm -hmm. to tell us what it's going to be um and there's like you know every now and again we'll have a good lead or a good idea but it really is so scary to commit to another movie <laughs> yeah it's like you found um, the it like everything aligns so well that how could it align like that again i'm sure it will yeah well i don't know if it will I think that the other, I think the the reality of it is that um, the determining factors of whatever this next project is going to be are going to have to be a bit more practical. It's going to be like, okay, what's a film that we can actually finance? What's a film that we can like, you know, that has an audience that's going to like be worth reaching? Because mm -hmm. um, we made like a very niche movie, mm -hmm. um, and part of the problem with what like how the distributor approached it is that they marketed it as a general interest movie. I'm like, dude, this is not a general interest movie. It's mm -hmm. like, if you're into adventure exploration history, great, you'll love this film. Mm -hmm. If you're into Polish history or European history, great, you'll love this film. If you are into the, the intersection of those two things, you'll think this is the best movie of all time. <laughs> but <laughs> outside of that, like, there's so much media, there's so much content out in the world. Why mm -hmm. would you ever watch anything? Right. Um, and so these guys are approaching it as like a general interest movie. And it's just like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> like there's That's a legitimate audience for this film, but it is not just any old guy. Right. Like, and it's not to say that any old person won't enjoy it. I think there's actually a lot in this film that like it's, it, it casts a wide net in, in that it's like there's a lot to like a lot of different things that can like like uh, it works on many different levels is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. But it's like if you have literally any movie in the universe to choose from, like it's going to be, it's hard. It's a hard pitch to choose any one. Totally. So I'm going to ask the hard question. It's you can uh, take it as hard as you want, but the connection was very clear to me that, you know, we're now more aware as a, especially in the United States, but worldwide, just people are more aware of politics in general. And um, this film obviously the guys are literally under the 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 iron fist as you as they say so what um what did you learn about our current situation and what can we learn from watching this film and more broadly from looking at history to apply to today and also just you know what role do the, does the outdoor 
uh, aspect play. Right. So I think that the the most pertinent takeaway from this film, especially within, in the context of the outdoor industry and, and, and world, is that um, the outdoors are a platform for political change and uh, are a platform for getting a message out. Um, and I think more and more the outdoor industry is realizing its power. Uh, like, I think if you look at like uh, OR moving from Salt Lake to Denver, it's just like, listen, guys, we are a, a economical powerhouse. Like we bring in a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to vote with our dollar. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think the outdoor industry is realizing that. And I think that that's a trend that's been more and more evident where, where you know, companies like Patagonia, climbers like Alex Honnold, they're, they're using their platforms that are based on their outdoor achievements uh, to impact political change in the United States and beyond. Um, and I think that like one of the, one of the, like the, the sweet sentiments of the film is that um, these guys, what they're living through is, is political turmoil that at the time is, uh, feels like a lot but ultimately you know they push through it and they fight a good fight and they end up looking back at it like um like one of the greatest adventures of their lives right Mm -hmm. so like Mm -hmm. even though like the the fight is very hard and seems like it's it's never gonna end like they at the end of it all they're like that was that was it that was like the thing we're fighting for and it's not the colca canyon it's not the like the other like whatever's it's it's the, the, the thing with actual social impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you, what is it about the outdoors specifically where it's like this place where, uh, this happens to me, whenever I get out to the mountains, I always like, maybe not always, but a lot of the times if I think about like, man, shit's hitting the fan in the world, the news, the politics, I just kind of like look around me and I'm like, wait, if all these politicians just came up here and skied for a day, like maybe they would have a different perspective or... Like you look almost, you look back at like quote unquote society and you're like, that's the crazy stuff. Like this is here and now, like, why do we get so, uh, not that you have the answer to this, but what is it about the outdoors that gives us that perspective? Well, I think the outdoors are easier than real life. (laughs) (laughs) I think that like, no, no, it's true, man. I think that like, like. You look at anyone who's running an ultra marathon. It's just like, oh, what what went wrong in your life? That's hilarious. <laughs> and I say this as a person who like loves endurance sports. It's Dude, just I like, just saw that you ran your first half marathon. Yeah, I've never been much of a runner, but they this uh this, they just constructed this bridge uh, up the river for me, and it just makes a perfect half marathon loop. And I'm like, well, I don't really care about running too much, but that seems like a nice like thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it's it's true time and time again. Uh, if you look at like the Nepalese, like before Westerners showed up, they never climbed any mountains because why the fuck would you ever climb a mountain? It's stupid. Mm-hmm. Like you have real problems, mm-hmm. and like doing anything in the outdoors is completely a product of privilege. Um, and so, it just—I don't know. I feel like most of it's escape. It, like if you're out there and you're like, oh, this is so much easier and stuff, it's because you you only have to think about one thing and that the real world is harder and you have to think about many different things. There's this documentary, it's called like Mountain or something like that. I think Sherpa Cinemas made it, but it's it's about mm-hmm. exactly that. It's like humans have gotten to the point where we don't have lions chasing us and like we don't have to survive harsh winters and bad harvest seasons, which there is, you know, potentially coming food shortage. Um, 
but we seek out these challenges because it, at least from what I took away from this film and what I think is like we have these inherent needs as humans, especially men, but women as well to adventure, to push our boundaries. And when we live like a docile life and, uh, in this like normal quote, normal world, uh, we kind of like, it's almost like a muscle that's not being exercised. Yeah, I, I totally think that's right. I mean, like evolutionarily, it would make sense that our bodies are, uh, you know, predisposed to, yeah, be chased by lions and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so something's like gotta, not like, eat for four days and like hunt. Totally. Yeah. 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 I don't know you know, how, I mean, yeah, I think cognitive thought is a, a kind of an evolutionary singularity where we've very much diverged from our evolutionary track that we would have been on if we weren't able to ask questions like why, but and I don't know. That's probably why we go into the mountains. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Man, I, I feel home in the mountains myself, um, hoping to get up there Friday. One of the things that I connected to the world that we're living in now is the fact that in Poland, if you were a communist in USSR times, you would have different privileges. You'd have access to different things in society. You'd be treated better. You'd probably get a better job. Maybe you get into different schools. So it was like, a lot of people were pressured to be communist. And the the parallel that I see now with the world that we're living in is there's a, a certain demographic demographic of people who are being told you don't have privileges because of the obvious elephant in the room. So that's why I was kind of like, I hear a lot of people from Russia, from Poland talking about like, man, I've seen this, I've seen this script play out before. Like, my massage therapist is a Russian. She grew up in St. Petersburg and she's like telling me, Kyle, this is the same thing. Like I saw how, you know, neighbors would snitch on each other and like the, the trends that she saw in St. Petersburg. Now she's seeing in the United States in 2021. What do you have any comments on that? Sure. I think that, uh, that one of the things that attracted us to this film is that, um, in a large, we always kind of thought of it. This story is kind of like a, a punk rock, um, like a punk rock adventure story. Uh, and one of the things that is funny about like punk rock uh, in the United States is it always has like a very like anti, uh, it's always anti right leaning. Uh, but like punk rock in communist countries is always anti left leaning. Hmm. And I think that it doesn't really matter whether it's right or left. I think it's like authority, like authoritarianism is essentially a circle. Like the further you go left and the further you go right, you kind of end up in the same spot. Sure. Um, and so I've always like, like that, like that, there's these amazing stories about Los Freakies, which is like this a punk movement from Cuba where it's also, it's like anti-communist punk, which like, if you were talking about punk rock in the United States, someone was always certainly communist leaning. Uh-huh. Um, and so I always thought that that was a pretty funny perspective to look at, but I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about um, about Eastern European immigrants or immigrants from communist countries in the United States is that they they live in a world uh, that is somewhat frozen in time, um, and this is based off of my experience uh, with Polish immigrants in the United States, with who, whom I have a lot of interactions with, uh, and Polish people in Europe, uh, and how like those kind of worlds uh, compare is that people who have emigrated to the United States uh, did so because they were fleeing communism. And they have this kind of embedded idea that, like, 
any sort of social program, any sort of something is a slippery slope that takes you straight back to social, uh, uh, to Soviet communism. Sure. And that is not an idea that is necessarily uh, shared with people who have stayed in those countries and that have changed into democracies. Interesting. And so uh, it's funny when I look at like my aunts and uncles who live in, still live in Poland and my aunts and uncles who, who moved to the United States, it's like totally different where they have seen that like, oh no, social programs are kind of legit and they're like, it doesn't immediately take you to so- Soviet communism. Mm-hmm. But the ones who left are so scared mm-hmm. of the, the world that they left. They're so scared of anything that remotely resembles something that they, they left from. Right. I think it's so well said, like it's stuck in time, almost like the, the world they left is frozen in time. That's really well said. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And it's also like, I, have, I go through this all the time with my parents. So like, it's like, dude, a, like a social program is not Soviet communism. Those are completely different things. Right. And it's, it, yeah, you have to be vigilant and, 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 uh, you know, that things happen not no one shows up and goes like oh now we are now a tyranny right slowly and over time and absolutely you have to remain vigilant over that but i don't know i don't think it's all i don't think it's it's as easy to be like oh this is a this this smells like that so it must be that Uh uh uh-huh totally totally no that's that's really interesting what more broadly what role do you think uh, storytelling, documentary filmmaking, and just individuals in general have, like, in terms of holding the line, right? Like, uh, I forget it was, like, Thomas Jefferson said, like, you know, I've given you a democratic republic or whatever. I've given you a republic as long as you can keep it. Uh, and our First Amendment is obviously the, the right to free speech. Um, and so what, do you have any sense of like obligation as a storyteller especially one with the ability to really tell a story you know in the right way i think i wrote here but i haven't mentioned it tying back to earlier in the conversation where a film is made three times once when it's shot or once when it's written once when it's shot once when it's edited and the the one that goes out and gets published is the one that's edited and what Mm -hmm. drew me to filmmaking originally was like its power the power that film has to change hearts and minds right um, yeah. So what do you see? Is that a factor that you're looking at in new projects? Is that something that drives you? Is that something that's more of like a nice to have after you tell a good story or? No, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that story is probably the most powerful thing in terms of uh, influencing culture and uh, changing people's opinions or not even changing, but just defining people's opinions on things. Uh, so I think it's tremendously powerful, but I also think it's like incredibly dangerous and it's also even as like a, as a storyteller, it's like it's so hard to know what objective truth is. Hmm. Um, it's so much so that like it's it's pretty much reckless to make anything. <laughs> right. Well, uh, well, just you know, let let the pros do it, kind of thing. Like, well, no, 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 no. That that's absolutely not the point. It's like the okay. pros are just people who are very confident in sure. what they have to say. Sure. Yeah. But have no more reason to be right. I mean, no, no, I mean, this is all dangerous territory. No, uh, we're, good. we're all, we're <laughs> skating on, we're on solid ice here. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's, um, I don't know, in terms of, like, in terms of like projects that like we are building and think about, it's it, uh, like the social responsibility part of it is very important because mm-hmm. like that's ultimately like where the value in storytelling comes from because everything else is kind of like, 
decoration and mm-hmm. like garnish, right? Like, P- yeah, people I mean, have different perspectives. Like with comedy, like some people think comedy should just be only for laughs. Other people yeah, think, sure. oh, comedy should have a message. And so it's kind of the same thing with film. Like some people think film is just for entertainment. Other people might say, well, film can be entertaining, but it should have a purpose behind it. And every, I, I don't judge anyone for falling anywhere on that spectrum, but I'm just interested yeah. to know kind of like what, it, it sounds like it is important to you, but it not necessarily like you feel like you have to boil the ocean or something like that. I know. I, I mean, I, I think that, I think that it is important. I mean, like, I mean, I, I like form, like just ex- like formal experimentation, like cinematography and just kind of the technical exercises, but it's all technical exercises. Like, unless you're like doing something, unless there's like an objective behind it, it's just like, you're just masturbating with it. <laughs> it's just like, all right, cool. Yeah. Your comedy was funny, but all right, what does it matter? Right. Um, and so my favorite things have always been like very allegorical mm-hmm. where uh, it's, it's, it has a message uh, and an objective, but it does so in a way that is very, uh, obscured and not like it doesn't force it down your throat and like you, you wouldn't even know and like a person who was just like oh that was entertaining could happily live in a space where that is just entertaining mm-hmm. um and so yeah i don't know that's, that's like I, I i love i love allegory <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah no i thanks for entertaining me on these uh kind of more vague abstract questions i appreciate no, it yeah yeah no that's I, that's what i think about all the time but <laughs> which makes it more difficult to talk about because i'm like mm, there's, there's too much to say <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna add, just take a transition to something similar but slightly different and i want to ask you this another pretty self-interested question but i've been thinking about this a lot so maybe you can help me out um as i've been dealing with this feeling like I have something to say inside of me, but I don't know how to articulate it correctly. Mm -hmm. And as an artist, like there's so much going on in the world. There's so much good content out there. There's so many good podcasts. Like why even put my stuff out? I could just reshare so-and-so who does such a better job, or I could just tell someone to watch a film that's like a thousand times better than something I could do. So do you struggle with this feeling of like having something inside of you that you need to release or having something to say does putting stuff out there satisfy that for you or how do you think about your role like how do you, just comment on of, that i have like two answers in this uh one is a bit more concrete than the other uh i absolutely struggle with the fact of like why make anything because there's so much stuff out there uh and like expect in the genre of mountain films it's like every single year it's the exact same movies that come out they're really, literally the exact same movies it's like i I, I, it would be so easy to have another project if mm-hmm. it was if it was just like, all right, just make it like an outdoor movie about mm-hmm. like this person who feels alive when they're in the mountains, like, right. and that like you know it's just like I don't fucking care, I don't care, and so that's why Godspeed Los Polacos was such like a, uh, a revelation for us. It was, it was like oh, there's so much more to this than just like the same old adventure story, um, but like. Now, yeah, there is so much content. My friend has this one line that he always says that, like, now isn't the ed, like age of creation; it's the age of curation, mm-hmm. uh, where it's like being able to find the good stuff through the mountain of all the the, the content because there's just so much; it's insane. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it does. It absolutely makes it hard to choose something that's worth telling. Is your uh, ma- like, yeah? Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and it's also like. I think for like the last decade, I've always been really focused on like this, like outdoor adventure exploration genre. 
Um, but more and more so, I've been kind of more disinterested in it. Like, I can't think of anything less interesting. I mean, sure, if the money's good enough, I'll do it. Whatever. <laughs> Hell yeah. But like, uh, like, I can't think of anything more, like, less interesting than shooting an expedition film. Mm. Like, just going somewhere and like, I don't know. Oh, someone rode their bike across Africa. Like, who the fuck cares? Who cares? Unless you're a bike tourer who's also planning on doing something like that, because you it, like that's the adventure you want to have. Like, mm-hmm. who who cares? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's really it would be really hard to motivate for something like that. And that's what like with Godspeed. If if you had told me to do that, exp- like film that during the, during it, I mean, I would do it because it sounds awesome and like a fun adventure. But like the only reason that we were able to tell the story that we were able to tell is because we have 40 years of distance to look at sure. back on it and, and tell how it changed. And that's kind of a funny thing with, uh, with speaking of the photographer from the expedition, when we went to do his interview, he was just like, why are you guys making this movie? Hmm. Like it's 40 years old. Who cares? Like it's already been done. It's already been said. And it was a perfect example of someone who was too close to the story to see the whole picture. Um, and what we had, was the 40 years to look back and be like, oh, these are how all the pieces connect. Yeah, he probably didn't buy into that when you're 23 years old or 25 years old. Like, you young yeah, guns. Well, <laughs> I didn't, we didn't even know it. We uh-huh. were just like, oh, this is going to be cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it was very much like, oh, no, like I, like, I feel like I learned so much the whole thing. It's like, like now whenever I look at any, like, I, every time I think about myself like a year in the past, I'm like, how did that guy do anything? Dude. That guy was so dumb. <laughs> I, I feel you, man. And then you extrapolate that to the future and you're like, wait, there's stuff right now that seems daunting and like I'll never be able to do that. And maybe in yeah, the future you can figure some stuff out and you'd be surprised what you can do with just some practice. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, oh my God. Yeah, every time I think about, I'm like, I don't know how I did anything before today. <laughs> that's really funny well man i i appreciate your time i know we've we've ran we, i'm my recorder says an hour and a half here um and i i guess i want to ask you before we wrap up just what's next and as well what are some of if you have any um daily practices routines you know pillars of your mindset that you're thinking about today that you'd share sure uh in terms of routines i don't know my schedule is so crazy that i have very little opportunity for routine unfortunately uh which 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 like with editing it like it takes me like three days before i can edit something like like if i have a job that's like i don't know even if it's just like a day a day maybe can i can reset but like Mm -hmm. if i have like a like a few days of work and i get back and i start editing the first day is a complete wash Mm -hmm. it's just like emails and this stuff blah 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 second day is like I just kind of like I'm an idiot. And then the third day, that's like by the time, that's like when I can actually start editing again. And so it's like, it takes me forever to do anything because it's just like to get into the right headspace, yeah. it, I need a lot of time, um, which is why I don't edit professionally. Even yeah. though I think that editing is really where like, where it all happens for documentary. Um, but I could, I just couldn't do it. There's like some people who can flip it on and off, but I don't know if they can really flip it on and off. I, I don't uh, know. I don't know how they do it. It takes me. It takes me. I have to be in a very specific mindset headspace as well. Um, but yeah. I will say, once there's like this feeling that I get, and it happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was working on a video, first time it's happened in like a year, where like you just you're excited to get back in the edit. You're like, oh man, yeah. I just want to. I want to pick up and right where I left off, just keep sprinting. And all of a sudden, you start to see this timeline start to build, and the layers on the premiere start to stack up. And uh, yeah, that's super satisfying. That's- 
I always try, like, if I can, if the time is there, I'll always try to, like, immediately go into post, like, after really? a shoot, because that's when I'm most psyched. Just media like, manage and just get into it, open it up. Just get into it. Yeah. If, if I have the time and there's not other responsibilities or whatever, that, yeah. I can, like, if I can ride that wave, I can knock it stuff out really fast. But as soon as I let it sit, and if, if I do another shoot in between that, I'm, like, completely disinterested in that, the, mm. whatever this shoot was before the last one. Uh, but this is all to say that I don't have any routine. <laughs> I just like work a freelance life and like, I don't know, everything is different. It kind of sucks because like, like last season I had a really excellent uh, ice climbing season. And then this year is like completely shot where like. You just know you're going to be working. I, well, yeah, I was just in Africa for two weeks and then I'm going to Antarctica in February. And I was going like, to ask, where are you going in February? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so Antarctica. I mean, it's just like, these are sick projects, but like, and like, like ice climbing, I don't know. It's just like something I do for fun. Uh -huh. uh, but I'm like, God damn it. I'm not even going to like, what? I'm going to start training just to have my sh like season end like at the end of January. Oh, What's the point? That's the thing about being fit is like, <laughs> like you, it's not like you get fit once and then you're done. It's like, uh -huh. you got to keep being fit. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I always say like, you never know what you're training for. I used to like, you know, work out literally thinking to myself, like I'm working out right now so that when I get hired for an expedition film or for yeah. whatever, like I'll be physically capable of doing it. Yeah. That's kind of how I, how I do it. And that's how I've been, I've been doing a lot more running recently just cause I mean, I say recently, but I've kind of been doing this, I guess for like five years now where I don't love running. I love mountain biking and all sorts of other fun stuff. But you know but how like, to suffer. It's, <laughs> but it's so much easier to go run. Like you can just go outside your door sure. and in like a half hour or an hour, you are completely worked. Yeah. And like the thing about running is like you don't have any choice but to like get a workout. Like on a bike, you can just go on a ride and just like you can come back and be like, oh, that was totally chill. But if you're running, you're like, you have to work out. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, yeah. I caught myself recently like kind of feeling a little bit out of shape on the bike. I love cycling, mountain biking as well. I've, I've never been at the level of like competing or anything like yeah. that, but I'm a, I'm a recreational guy. And, uh, I've just like, I've had this like insecurity, like I'm getting out of shape. And so I've been like pedaling even harder, trying to hit my PRs on Strava completely yeah. irrelevant. Not that anyone cares, but yeah, that's, uh, that's but see, like, mind. that's the thing. Like you can get the, the, the thing about riding a bike is that you can ride a bike the same way that you would walk. In that, like, sure. the amount of energy that you expend is sort of like walking. But if, like, you're running, like, like that just takes a lot more work. But, like, to be running on your bike, is, like, I have to, like, focus on actually, yeah. like, oh, I have to be pedaling hard. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but, yeah, you got some good-ass mountain biking out there. You oh. know, by, like... Uh, North Bend and whatnot. Yep, yep. You know, they're building even more stuff. There, There's, like, huge... Uh, there's this organization called evergreen mountain bike they're building like another 30 miles of trails up there and they're going to connect like the pass up in snoqualmie pass all the way down to some of the to tiger mountain and some of the newer trails so yeah that's awesome it's super exciting uh what's that doothy hill i remember doothy hill being like the coolest little mountain bike park that's that's, that's where like I the learned. perfect community mountain bike park like holy crap you can you can that's something there for everybody place is a gem for sure like yeah. pros go there and also kids learning go there it's it's a very special place. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, Washington's a gem in general. People don't, you know, people sleep on it. They say the best mountain biking's in Utah or maybe in BC, but we've got some good stuff nah, going dude. here. <laughs> that shit's blown up. You guys have the best access to everything. Best mountaineering in the States, best mountain biking in the States, best whitewater in the States. Got Man. it all, baby. 
Well, next time you come out, man, I hope to see your face and uh, maybe we can get out there and do something physical together. And Hell yeah. um, again, dude, appreciate you taking some time out of the busy schedule. I'm super excited after this conversation. I'm smiling and uh, ready to start the day. So thank you so much. And uh, where can we find if we want to other than the film? Should we follow you on the, the Instagrams or, or where's the best place to keep in touch? Yeah, I'm on Instagram uh, it's under Radam Narat. So my name with an R in front of the first name and a G in front of the last name. Um, and then, yeah, I guess that's mostly where I post stuff. Uh, and then just kind of like all my stuff is uh, on my website. So adamnara.net. Awesome, man. Well, And also shout out to Adventure Filmmakers Workshop. Hopefully uh, we can get this published in our little private Facebook group and some of the folks can listen to it. I've had a few. I've had Matt... Um, Matt, why am I freaking? Melee, Melee, Melling, Melling, yeah, Matt Melling's been on the show, a couple others, and yeah, it's cool to see, like, just, I I still, man, I remember sitting in the classroom, looking to my right, you're over there, like, asking these very specific questions about, like, how do you get your gear across the borders and this, and I'm like, (laughs) how do you, like, press freaking play on the camera, you know, like, we were just at way different stages, so it's kind of cool to be, you know, in your shadow in a positive way, to, like, see that it's possible to make a film, get it into the Bant Film Festival, that's still on my list, I didn't mention it, but I made a film and submitted it the same time you did, completely different level of production, 11-minute short film, got rejected, but uh, I'll be back, I'll be submitting another one, yes, sir. Hell yeah. Yeah, I made I'm, the first one. I remember I made this like weird, like artsy caving movie that I submitted like ages ago. Uh-huh. And like that one, that one had, I don't know. <laughs> you got to get those out, out of the belt. You yeah. got to get those. You got to get them out there. You can yeah. never make a great film without making some shitty ones first. That's right. All right. All right, Kyle. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, man. Have a great day, and again, appreciate you.